Hello and welcome to another episode of the Big Big Ten Football Show. I'm your host, Danny Moglione, and today we're going to take a step back at the quarter pole, take a little bit of a bigger picture, and focus, then zoom back in and focus in on the Big Ten East and kind of recalibrate that division, which is shaping up as arguably the deepest and best division in all of college football. Um, you know, it was it was mostly a ho-hum week, I think, for the teams in the West. Illinois lost at home where they had a chance to uh, get a big W if they have, you know, if they have still hopes of making a bowl. Nebraska uh, rekindled their rivalry with Oklahoma and took, you know, credit the Huskers for hanging in there. Minnesota took on another former Big 12 team in Colorado and just absolutely smoked the Buffaloes and held them below 100 yards of offense. Um, I had to double take on that one myself, um, unable to watch it as it was on the uh, Pac-12 network, which is a rumored to be a uh, station that covers sports games. Uh, I have yet to be able to confirm that. Uh, Purdue Dropped a, a game to Notre Dame, lost by two touchdowns. Iowa did Iowa things with their 30-27, to 27, no-nonsense um, win over Kent State, a Mac school. And I guess we're going to say Northwestern did Northwestern things, losing 30-23 to 23 to uh, a, a Duke team that is um, considered to be the bottom of the ACC now, let's let's focus now on the Big Ten East, which, as I said, I think uh, this potentially is the best conference in all of college football. And we have a lot of recalibration in terms of um, how what, what are the expectations of these teams? What are their ceilings? What are their floors? How do they stack up against each other? I think we're seeing a, a, a condense a condension of bringing together, of the Big East, and you know, I saw some funny tears out there. That I mean, honestly, they're they're funny. I feel like they're out there for humor humor purposes. Um, when somebody has Rutgers in the same tier as Ohio State, you, you're this is a gag, right? Okay. Um, I think Ohio State does have company in their tier, though. I think it's safe to say that right now. If I had to, if you pin me down and said, Dan, who is the favorite to win the Big Ten? Or just the Big Ten East? It's still Ohio State, okay? It's still the Buckeyes. They still have the most talent. But if I told you today that it would be Penn State or even, <gasps> gasp, Michigan, I think you would not look at me like I was crazy, which you would have three, four weeks ago before the season started, right? There's no question about that. No one thought that no one really gave anyone else other than Ohio State a chance to uh, win this game. And the reason is, is um, while the ceiling is still high, the ceiling is, is not changed because the talent remains in Columbus. But the floor has certainly um, dropped 
for the Buckeyes. There's no way around that. Um, they did not. They, they have yet to really look dominant in any of their games. Um, they beat you know Minnesota, but the, the Gophers really gave them a game, moved the ball against them, and and if Mohamed Ibrahim doesn't get hurt, who knows? Um, obviously, they had the loss to Oregon, and then last week they find themselves in a game in the fourth quarter against Tulsa in a 20-point win that, you know, the score is not at all indicative of how well the Buckeyes played against the uh, Tulsa. They gave up a ton of yards through the air, and it wasn't just about, it wasn't just about the pass attempts, which, you know, there were a lot of, but 428 yards through the air, 7.9 yards per attempt, 13.8 yards Per completion, so they they were efficient. Tulsa throwing the ball against Ohio State, other than uh, two interceptions. You had their Buckeyes top five tacklers. If we're going to count Hickman, the bull, who is a you know hybrid linebacker, defensive back. If we count him as a DB, uh, Ohio State's top five tacklers in their win over Tulsa were defensive backs. And I told you this in week one, that strip sack by Zach Harrison against Minnesota, which resulted in a fumble return for a touchdown, that was the difference in that game. And this is what Ohio State needs moving forward, because I don't think the secondary is going to be a vintage Ohio State secondary. But if you have a pass rush that creates negative plays, whether it's a sack to force a, a, a punt or a turnover, if they're creating havoc, right? That's that's the trendy word, havoc. If they're creating havoc up front, you can make up for some of the ills you have on the back. And there's enough talent there, and the offense is going to move the ball. They don't need to be perfect defensively. But in 56 dropbacks against Tulsa, only two sacks. Okay? Kerry Coombs... Um, was both booted from the sideline to the press box, and he also had his play-calling duties taken away from him. Secondary coach Matt Barnes called the play. I'm not sure why that meant he went to the press box. Maybe Ryan Day just doesn't want to look at him on game day. That's definitely a possibility. Um, But clearly, Ohio State does not look like the crisp machine that they've been year after year after year from Urban Meyer right into Ryan Day. Um, this is the most vulnerable this program has looked in, you know, other than that, you know, in that one year with Luke Fickle, basically. Um, at times, they just don't look right. They don't always look well coached. Um, even the offense last game, it was a one-man show. It was Trevion Henderson, who, you know, this kid is a beast. Uh, we heard about how dynamic and how phenomenal he was going to be how he was going to make an immediate impact as a true freshman. Well, he did that on Saturday with just an absolute monster game. The kid set the all-time Buckeyes freshman record for rushing yards in a game with 277, breaking Archie Griffin's uh, record. Dare I say, you know, the best freshman running back uh, at Ohio State uh, since Maurice Claret helped lead them to a national title, 
Um, looks more talented than a Maurice Claret. Looks more like an Adrian Peterson. Not necessarily um, the physicality that Peterson brought, but a true freshman who looked like a man, who looked like NFL ready. That's what Henderson looked like on on Saturday. Um, you know, you 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 talk about how uh, football players aren't ready for uh, the pros out of high school. Uh, Trevion Henderson might be ready. He might he he looks NFL ready to me, and so they have that going for them. Offensively, though, the passing game that was their third least efficient passing game uh, as graded by PFF since 2018 so they really needed um Henderson to do what he did against Tulsa at home that that's that folks that's not Ohio State football that's not the Ohio State football we've come to expect so while they still have a high ceiling a lot of freshman folks made plays in this game uh Talik Williams who's a guy who you know I have my depth chart printed out wasn't even somebody that looked like he was going to be on on the third team depth chart. I actually had to write his name in because it, it wasn't on the R lads depth chart that I printed out. He he got a sack in that game. Um, uh, JTT looks like he might be actually the best defensive end on this team. Um, he definitely pops to me. Uh, Jack Sawyer's another true freshman. Uh, Denzel Burke, the corner, is playing a lot. So it's not just Henderson in terms of talented freshmen who are making an impact. So, and, and I'm leaving the ceiling where it is because this team is young and they could grow. They could get better as the season goes along. And because they're vulnerable now, it doesn't mean that they won't be the team we thought they'd be at the very end or won't make it to the playoff. But the floor is definitely lowered. And if they were to lose another game, another two games, and finish 9-3, and three, the way they look right now, it, it wouldn't be a shock. And going into the season, that would be a shock because this team's uh, total over-under was 11 wins. So they were right up there with the Clemsons and the Alabamas and the Georgias, and, and they don't appear to be that this year, at least not yet. Now, who could be a team that usurps them. We don't know. We still don't know. But the returns from Happy Valley and Ann Arbor have been positive. These are two teams that are the traditional teams that have been chasing Ohio State of late, um, that have finished, one of those two teams typically finishes second in the in the Big Ten East. Uh, contrary to popular belief, it's not always Penn State. Um Last year, they had losing records, and they both bounced back. So I think we can definitely throw last year away. I did it already before the season even started because there was too much consistency there before the COVID year to make me, to have me believe that, oh, well, you know, the COVID year is the real year. That's what these programs really are. And, you know, out of all the Big Ten teams, you can argue that Penn State had the biggest win last week. They took care of Auburn. 28 to 20 at home, a big whiteout win. The defense was impressive. There's a lot of speed there uh, defensively. They they look athletic. The back seven, you have Brandon Smith, the linebacker, had a monster game. He was all over the place. Uh, Brooks is another you know impressive athlete on that second level. Brisker, 
uh, Joey Porter Jr. are obviously two guys that stand out as playmakers, as impact-type players. Um, And I know everyone is super, super high on Penn State, and they deserve a lot of credit for this win. It was a quality win. But I'm I'm still not sold that they are a top five team or that they are the biggest threat to Ohio State. And I'll tell you why. There's a couple of things that I didn't love. While there was things I saw, I thought, you know, and I thought they did a good job on Bigsby, uh, Auburn's All-American running back. They held him to 4.4 yards per carry. But overall, Auburn did look like the better team on the line of scrimmage. Uh, the backup running back actually had a better game than Bigsby did, and the duo combined for 165 yards on 32 carries. No negative runs on those 32 carries. As Auburn finished with 4.6 yards a carry, uh, Penn State only had 2.8 yards a pop there. Noah Kane has not looked great this season. He only had 2.4 yards per carry on his 19 touches. 19 carries couldn't even get to 50 yards. Um, then there was the questionable play calls by Auburn, the fourth and one fade call, which I thought was an absurd play. I couldn't believe they they kicked a field goal on um, that. Was, excuse me, not fourth and one. That was fourth and goal. But on they kicked a field goal before that on um, on fourth and one. So I, I thought you know Auburn helped Penn State a little bit by mismanaging the game. Um, you can make a case Auburn got the whistle a couple times. Uh, maybe, maybe. It's more debatable, I think. Those plays are a little more debatable than people are saying. Obviously, the the third down to fourth down is not debatable. But part of me also is like, you know, I don't want to hear a possession later, James Franklin's telling the officials, you're wrong. Bro, if, if they're wrong, then don't punt the ball. Don't punt it. Call a timeout. Don't punt the ball. I, th- that's what I don't get. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, that was an awful mistake by the official. But that doesn't mean, you know, Penn State, I feel like, don't punt it. Say, like, yo, we, we, we know it's third down. Check. You can check these things. It's not that complicated. All right. Now, the other thing, my man Sean Clifford. And I say that facetiously because I was down on Clifford. To me, he was the reason why this team wouldn't compete. And, you know, listen, new offensive coordinator came in. He definitely is doing a better job. Um, Sean Clifford is definitely looking more like the player he was in 2019, not 2020. Uh, Yurisich over Sarasca, whether it's He's a better coordinator. Maybe he's just a better fit with his personnel. Uh, clearly, the floor for Clifford has been raised. I'm not sure that the ceiling for Clifford has been raised. Okay, and the reason I say that is while he was 28 to 32 for 280 yards, you love the 9.2 yards per attempt. That was due to the accuracy, which you know, hey, accuracy is a good thing. I'm not taking that away from him, but only 10.4 yards per catch. And looking at the game, watching the game, then looking at the numbers afterwards, and it feels like they don't really trust Sean Clifford. And at this point in his career, at home, third year into his starting reign, that to me is a concern. Um, Dotson, a dynamic Big-time playmaker, 10 catches, 
only 78 yards. Parker Washington, eight catches, 49 yards. Those are your one and two receivers. Now, I expect Washington to be a, you know, possession receiver, quote-unquote possession receiver. That's an old-time term. Ask, ask your father. Ask your grandfather what it means. So his, his yards don't really... They're not that shocking, but Dotson, you're wasting an, an elite talent there. So between those two, your number one, number two receivers, 18 receptions, only 127 yards. That's seven yards per catch. That was on 21 targets. That's six yard a target. Some people run more than six yards a, a, a run. You got to do better than that throwing to your best two receivers. And they made up for it because of the tight ends which is a Penn State thing. You know, they have that lineage of tight end after tight end after tight end. Gusecki, uh, Fryermuth most recently. Um, so many good tight ends have been produced from that program. And guys like Strange was a four-star. Uh, Theo Johnson, who had a big 37-yard catch to set up a touchdown. He was, uh, Strange did have a touchdown. Theo Johnson's went inside the five to set up a touchdown. He was a top 100 recruit. So these are athletic playmaking potential tight ends, and I love that they use them. But it seemed like you know they, they hit two big plays when the tight ends were uncovered, right? Did you watch the game? If you watched the game, you could see it was well, okay, he's wide open, nobody's covering him. It almost looked like did uh, did does Auburn's defense not know you could throw to the tight end? Did they think did they think he was a tackle? Because it looks like they're not covering him. So this is why I'm tempering my enthusiasm for Penn State. I think Penn State is, has, while Ohio State's floor has dropped, I think Penn State's floor has risen. I'm not sure their ceiling has risen, though, because we knew they had talent, and I'm still not sure Clifford can make the tough throws when he needs to. And the defense, you know, it was, it was fine. It was okay. Um, I think maybe, I think they could still get better defensively, but they got to show it because I think Auburn was able to run the ball with their two running backs. As I said earlier, no negative runs on those 32 carries. So, and, and Nick's is okay. He's not a great quarterback. He's in his third year. Um, just like, you know, third year starter, he's a junior because he started as a true freshman for Auburn, but he, he's not somebody to, you know, that you're going to worry about too much beating you. So I think kind of Penn State did what they were supposed to do. Uh, Auburn's an okay SEC team, uh, probably slightly better than above average. I don't think they're necessarily definitely a top 25 team. So at home, they took care of business. Uh, Michigan is another program, you know, that you can say, well, wow, wow, if you're down on beating Auburn, what do you have to say about beating Northern Illinois? Which is fair. That's a fair... A critique. Michigan, you know, really hasn't been challenged yet. But I will point out that I think it's very well possible that Washington, hold on now, Washington, I'm not sold that Washington is worse than either Miami or Auburn. I think it's very possible Washington could be as good or better than those teams. Okay, Washington, I know one thing, Washington has a really good defense. They have a really good defense, and they showed that in, the, in their other two games. Um, Michigan's opponents do have 
uh, wins against power other Power 5 teams, which, you know, something Auburn doesn't have. Uh, Northern Illinois beat a Georgia Tech team that uh, was a play away from beating Clemson on Saturday. They had a goal to go. Four play. They had four shots to beat Clemson on Saturday. Um, and what was the first game? Western Michigan beat Pitt. So, which, funny. I mean, Harbaugh, he can't help himself, man. He had to bring that up on his own. How about how about Western Michigan, huh? They looked pretty good. They had a nice win. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think maybe... Um, Michigan's opponents are, are a little underrated, but they're not great. Let's, you know, to be fair, they're not great. And I think the, the Michigan also has some question marks, which need to be answered that, you know, we're not going to know exactly how good the Wolverines are moving forward. But I, I really think that they, it's possible that they could be the best team in the Big Ten, I think it's possible. I think I think the ceiling has def. I think both the floor and the ceiling have been raised in Ann Arbor this year so far through three games. Um, my floor hasn't been raised that much because if you remember at the start of the season, their over under was seven and a half, and I told you that this is the most undervalued team in probably in college football, but certainly the Big Ten going into the season, you know, there's more, a lot more talent there than the pundits are telling you there is. And uh, we're starting to see it right now. Blake Corum is PFF's uh, highest rated running back among power five uh, schools through three weeks. Aiden Hutchinson is PFF's number one edge defender through three weeks. They had 11 runs of 10 plus yards against Northern Illinois in their 63 to 10 win which was 63 to 3 at one point um, and the numbers people to me watching them they passed the eye test um, and the numbers people like them as well I mean we saw Blake Corum's talent is unquestioned he was a borderline top 100 guy I forgot if he was just inside or just outside he had a touchdown run where basically I was like cut it back and then he just turned the corner and and beat the guy up the sideline and I was like okay I guess I guess don't cut it back just go to that next gear and then Cornelius Johnson their wide receiver he had an 87 yard touchdown he was actually rated as that was the uh he was the second fastest player last week with the ball in his hands on that touchdown so this team does have athletes the the numbers people like Michigan ESPN's FBI has them ranked number six in the country. SP Plus has them number six. College Football Reference SRS has them number two in the country. Um, they, their overall PFF grade is third in the country. So the numbers people definitely like them, and you know they they factor in the strength of schedule and the quality quality of opponent, which hasn't been great. They, they only have the one power five win against Washington, whose offense, to be fair, their offense isn't that great. So so what what are the concerns with Michigan? Well, there's two concerns, all right? Cade McNamara was fabulous on Saturday, 8 of 11, 191 yards, touchdown. Um, but clearly, they were more conservative with him against Washington. So the two games against uh, the Mac schools, um, not that not that they let him, not that he threw more. He actually threw fewer attempts, but they took shots down the field 
they were more conservative against Washington. Now, that could be a product of first game without Ronnie Bell. That could be a product of, um, hey, Washington has elite corners, NFL caliber corners, arguably the best you know corner tandem, corner trio we're going to see all season. Why force it? Well, you know, we're running the ball. Just keep running the ball, as Harbaugh said. But it leaves you question marks regarding Cade McNamara. He still has a lot to prove. And, you know, he's not he's probably not going to prove it this week uh, against Rutgers. But until we see him do it, that is uh, uh, still remains an unknown. If Michigan has uh, uh, a quarterback that is good enough. That is, you know, I was kind of knocking Clifford. I think McNamara has a chance to be better than Clifford, but it's a, ch- you know, it's a chance to be better than Clifford. He might not be as good as Clifford. It's possible he's worse than Clifford, right? So that's something we still don't know. And defensively, I really, really love what I've seen from Mike McDonald, and we're going to talk about it more with our guests coming up soon. And um, that's Rainer Saban from the Detroit Free Press who covers not just Michigan, but Michigan State as well. So we're going to talk to him about both of those teams. I really love how uh, Mike McDonald puts his star players in position to make plays and uses them like chess pieces, right? Um, Don Brown's defense was dominant at times. And, you, you know, five, six years ago, you would never hear me say a bad word about his defenses. But... And there's always a but, right? It did seem like, well, this is what this position does. I plug you in, so you do what that position does, right? So, you know, I get Rayshon Gary, but you're going to do what our 4-3 defensive end does. It felt more like checkers and chess while Mike McDonald is like, oh, I have I have Aiden Hutchinson. I have Daxton Hill. Well, you're going to play like four or five different positions. It seemed like they only did that with Jabril Peppers, where they moved him around a lot and used him in a more dynamic way. Well, Mike McDonald is doing that, and I think his coverage schemes, which are not fully zoned, he does incorporate press man coverage as well, I think they they will help uh, Michigan's secondary, which, you know, so far has played well. But again, part of that is the competition. Uh, you know, they really haven't been tested by an elite uh, group of receivers um, just yet. Although, you know, Northern Illinois and Western Michigan did, you know, do project as teams that have good offenses and they've put up points in other games, you know, going over 40 points in other games. So it was great to see. It was great for Michigan to um, shut them down. But, you know, you got to take that. You got to weigh that and say, hey, these weren't the greatest opponents you face. So, they're going to be they're going to be challenged uh, more, and we'll see how that comes at the end of the season. But I think it's safe to say, I, I don't think anybody would argue that whatever you thought the gap was between Ohio State and Penn State, between Ohio State and Michigan, that gap has been made smaller. I won't say closed. They're not even with them yet. They still have to prove more. Ohio State still deserves more benefit of the doubt they still have the most talented team uh on in the big 10 the most talented roster in the conference but there's no way anyone would argue that these teams are not bunched up closer today than we thought they would be 
when the season started. And joining us now is Rainer Sabin, who covers both uh, the Michigan Wolverines and the Michigan State and Spartans, as well as the Big Ten for the Detroit Free Press. Rainer, uh, thanks a lot for joining us today. Uh, glad you could give us some time this weekend, uh, coming off week three in the college football season. Uh, let's start with uh, the Michigan Wolverines, who through three games now have rushed for over a thousand yards. Um, we're talking 7.2 yards per carry, 15 rushing touchdowns. That's led by the spectacular play of Blake Corum. Um, Rainer, is this the best rushing offense you've seen under Harbaugh and is is Corum they're already you know on the verge of becoming their best offensive player during his tenure uh well I mean I, I think uh I mean just to give some background I've, I've only uh you know covered the team since 2019 it's really the best I've seen since they've been here but it does harken back to kind of the early Harbaugh uh era I guess at, at Michigan and even before that when he was at the 49ers and at Stanford where I mean they you know want to out muscle you at the line of scrimmage and um, occasionally beat you with uh, maybe maybe some play action deep shots and such uh, but yeah the running game is is their strength uh, they identified that as a strength before the season and have built the offense around that. Well, Rainer, yeah, I forgot you you did cover Alabama. Sure, um, sure. So so tell me this then. You've seen these elite high level four or five star recruits who turn into first round pick. How does a Blake Corum compare to an Alabama back? I, I think Corum has the potential to uh, definitely have a very productive career at the college level. Um, you know, he, he's a little bit smaller. I mean, he, he's done some, uh, made some impressive gains in the weight room, really kind of has built his body to endure, uh, the rigors of the big 10 schedule. Um, you, you can see the progress he's made in that regard. And I think he's got, um, you know, great maneuverability. He, he struggled last year on the edges, strangely enough, which is, uh, probably was his strength going into last season um, and now he's become more of a physical runner kind of between the tackles runner and he's actually had more success with that this year than even uh, what he was able to do on the edges last year so it's kind of interesting to see his progression um, you know it's it's a little bit too early to tell again whether he can hold up during the course of the Big Ten season uh, they haven't obviously played a Big Ten opponent yet um, but uh, the early returns suggest that um, he should do pretty well. And, uh, you know, if, again, if the, it all depends on the offensive line continuing to win at the line of scrimmage as they have. Now, the, the lack of balance on offense is concerning to some, as this has really be, been a very run-heavy team um, through three games. Uh, Cade McNamara, the starting quarterback, only has attempted – 37 passes this season. Um, I went through all the teams, seven of the teams in the seven of the other teams in the Big Ten. Their starting quarterback has already done that in a single game. And there's only two quarterbacks in the Big Ten other than Cade, who hasn't had th uh, at least 30 attempts in, in a single game. So there, there's many ways you could look at it. Obviously, the Harbaugh line would be, well, we're going to run until you stop us to run. 
But, you know, there's also reason to believe that, hey, maybe they have some doubts about the quarterback or maybe it could it be, hey, it's still early in the season. Uh, we have out-of-conference games we can win. We have Rutgers to start off Big Ten. So there's no reason to rush into things. We can, we can let our young quarterback grow into that role. How, how do you kind of view the, the balance so far? Uh, well, I do think it is a little bit uh, concerning um, in the sense that um, Michigan has not played uh, from behind yet this season. And I think, you know, uh, game circumstances, a lot of things people kind of tend to forget about when they look at, at how you, uh, you know, approach a game and whether you can compete, you know, in situational football. And in the sense that Michigan has not had to face any kind of deficit, it's interesting to see how they, uh, how they function once they do get behind. Um, you know, the, last year they started off every game trailing. Uh, they surrendered their first score in every game last year. And so they've corrected that, which is, you know, obviously very positive from, from Michigan's standpoint. But what happens when they fall behind at some point this season? Um, I mean, will they be able to continue to run the football or will they want to continue to run the football? And then if they have to pass it, can they do that? on a consistent basis. And I don't think we've seen that so far. And uh, that I think that's why the concern is uh, valid uh, on the part of a lot of people, uh, just because, again, there, there is no certainty that they'll be able to um, run a functional offense if they, if they have to throw the ball. And staying with that theme, um, once they do get in those situations, I know you wrote about earlier in the season about how much they like the uh, true freshman J.J. McCarthy. Um, I know this is not something that the team's going to release, but what's your feel so far that if McNamara does struggle the first time he gets put into that situation, how quickly do you think they might look to go to McCarthy or do you think uh, McNamara's got a longer leash? I think McNamara has a longer leash. I mean, uh, I think it would show uh, – uh, a, a lot of haste on their part if they did go to Mac, I had to go to McCarthy uh, in, in a tight situation. And it would kind of ruin the confidence, I think, of McNamara. I think he's already looking over his shoulder as it is just because of the hype that uh, McCarthy's name has generated um, and certainly kind of the wild play he had in the first game. And, you know, uh, you can make an argument that, again, McCarthy has a stronger arm and has a better physical talent. And McNamara faced the same situation last year with Milton, where he was overlooked uh, because he didn't have the, you know, the, the great physical traits that Milton had. Yet, you know, McNamara can run an offense. He um, Some of the things that we haven't seen yet this season that he did well last season, which run RPO game. Uh, you know, which is interesting that they haven't featured that at all, really, especially considering they have a potent run game. Um, so the question is whether, you know, again, if they do go to that more RPO style offense, you know, and, and determine that they want to have more balance running and throwing, then McNamara still may be the guy um, if he's allowed to kind of run that kind of offense. Because, again, he made some very good decisions getting the ball out quickly against Rutgers in that three-overtime win last year. Now, how about the defense, Rainer? Uh, we have a new defensive coordinator 
in McDonald coming over from the NFL, the Baltimore Ravens uh, implementing that 3-4 defense. We're seeing more stand-up edge rushers. Uh, so far, they really haven't had a great, great test in terms of two um, you know, group of five teams. And then Washington, we know their biggest struggles are on the offensive side of the ball. But you know, through three games, he really seems to have done a good job of unlocking the talent that they have on defense, particularly somebody like an Aiden Hutchinson. It looks like these guys are finally starting to flourish. Yeah, I agree. I would I would agree with that, that he's done a good job of featuring his best players, um, especially Hutchinson. But he's also done that with, you know, Dax Hill, who um, yep. certainly is the, the best player in that kind of uh, on the back end uh, for for Michigan, um, using him as a slot corner and, uh, um, you know, uh, let, letting him play a little bit closer to the line of scrimmage and such. But um, he's done a good job with that. But again, I think Michigan's best defense is his offense. I mean, you bet they've definitely limited the amount of plays they've had to defend by just running the ball and, you, you know, winning a little bit uh, in the time of possession category, which again, I think is an overlooked statistic, but it has a cumulative effect over the course of the season. Last year, Michigan had to defend the most, uh, the highest average uh, place per game in the Big Ten outside of Maryland. And, you know, they also had the lowest time of possession outside of Maryland. So um, it, it wasn't a recipe for success last year. And I think, again, they made a significant course correction on offense to help, you know, uh, basically disguise some of the weaknesses on defense uh, from a depth standpoint, because they don't have a lot of depth. And that's something to watch, too. Um, but McDonald has done a good job so far as far as, again, featuring some of these uh, more elite players that they have. Yeah, I, I think people tend to forget how much those two things can go hand in hand. Um, Rainer, you wrote about the Michigan State game. Uh, they beat mm -hmm. Miami, upset a ranked team uh, down there in South Beach. They are now in the top 25. Um, I watched, you know, pretty good portion of that game. It was. Uh, it seemed like Michigan State just said, "Miami, we're gonna. Since you want to beat yourself, we're gonna let you do it. We're not gonna make any mistakes." And and the Canes just seemed, whether it was a penalty or, a, I, I think the the biggest sequence was at a seven three game. The tight end drops a touchdown, then they get a penalty, then they miss a field goal, and it was like, all right, it's going to be that kind of day for Miami, and, sure. and Michigan State took advantage of it. So um, a lot of people are wondering, like, are they for real? I'm not exactly sure what for real means. Um, I'm not sure if they're a top 25 team. I think they're definitely a bold team and better than people thought they were going into the season. Um, how about you? Do you have them? Do you think they're a, a legit top 25 team? I think they're a legit team, whether they're top 25 or not, it, it, you know, I, I don't know. But I mean, the, the, the fact is, that I think that, that, that this is a solid team and a team right. that um, actually can play week in and week out and be competitive. And that's what I meant by, you know, this team is for real, is that they can compete on a week in and week out basis. I mean, last year, I mean, there was no, you didn't know what you were going to get from Michigan State because, again, Mel Tucker wasn't able to uh, institute his program to the fullest extent, um, right. given the circumstances that, you know, he was dealt. I mean, he was hired very late in the coaching cycle. The month later, the pandemic starts and the off seasons, uh, uh, practices are wiped out, you know, spring practices wiped out. Don't really have a normal 
off-season training program and you know the season gets um suspended and then it's you know put back on and you know he's had and he's got a bump to get the basically the team back uh you know up to shape and it's it was just a again a very difficult uh process for him to have to you know go through that with all the other stuff going around uh all the other circumstances he was having to um contend with and you know to for them to even beat Michigan and Northwestern last year was pretty remarkable but again they were unable to kind of uh you you know harness the momentum from those wins and carry it into the next week necessarily and so you just had these kind of isolated you know moments of success and this this win over Miami is totally different in the sense that I think it really is more indicative of a program that has been able to put things together um, and can carry one performance, good performance from one week into the next week and build on that. And so I don't think you have those isolated moments of success that you did last year. I think that this is more of a, uh, a trend that's developing with Michigan State. So I think that's very encouraging for uh, if you're a Spartans fan. Oh, for sure. I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, their, their number was four and a half wins. And I think people really underestimated what an impossible job Tucker had going in as, as you, you know, you outlined there. Um, bringing both teams together now, they're both three, and know, they're both ranked. We're talking night and day differences from both teams, from what we saw on the field in 2020 to, to 2021, which has you surprised more? Um, I would say Michigan State just, you know, going on the road and beating two power five uh, programs. And it's hard to assess, again, the quality of Northwestern. You know, they're one and two, I guess, now. And um, and then you have uh, the same thing, Miami being one and two. But obviously, one of those losses is to Alabama. And so uh, and Alabama has a tendency to wreck teams in those openers. Uh, they've done it pretty much every year. I mean, they've destroyed team seasons uh, right at, at the beginning. I mean, Florida State is an example in 2017, Louisville the next still, year. Florida State uh, still hasn't recovered. Yeah, exactly. And Louisville in 2018, uh, you know, that was a disastrous year for them. And then um, Miami looks like they could be a disaster themselves. Even with, even with that said, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Michigan State being able to put all this together, considering they have 41 new players, um, including 15 scholarship transfers and it to look this um, impressive, I guess, in, in the way that they've won um, and look as sound as they have um, is the thing that's most surprising to me. All right, Rainer, we'll let you go on this one. And, uh, you know, the fans, they love to hear those predictions. So who ends up uh, between the two uh, Michigan schools, Michigan and Michigan State, who ends up ranked higher uh, in the polls or in the big, big 10 East standings? Well, I'm going to, right now I'm, I'm going to side with, uh, I'm going to side with, Ooh, this is a tough one. I, I'm, I'm going to side with Michigan at the, at the moment, just because, you know, I think they stopped, um, started at a higher floor than Michigan state did. Uh, but I wouldn't be necessarily surprised if Michigan state ends up higher than Michigan too. I mean, I think it's all going to hinge on that game in East Lansing uh, in October 
um, when they when they both meet, um, where they go from there. Because I think you know again um, that that another win for Mel Tucker over Michigan could really send that pro program really to the point where they really believe they can do anything. Whereas with Michigan, if you know they can get that win themselves, you know on the road, um, possibly you know who knows if they're going to be favored. Um, which would be, you know, Harbaugh's first win as a underdog in his entire tenure in Michigan. Um, so, I mean, in that sense, I mean, it, it could be a huge win for for Michigan as well. So, I think a lot's going to hinge on that game when they meet in East Lansing um, later in the season. Yeah, I, I took a peek at the schedules, and if uh, Michigan can steal a win in Wisconsin, which might be that first underdog win that you're talking about. They, yeah. It's it's very possible they could both be undefeated. Who would have thought yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, it would be crazy if that was the case. I mean, but, it, you know, again, it's it's great to see, you know, both programs doing well and being able to kind of uh, rebound from uh, a very difficult year last year. All right, Rainer, thanks a lot, man, for joining us and giving us some time to, to break down both the Wolverines and the Spartans. That's Rainer Sabin. He writes for the Detroit Free Press. You can follow him on Twitter at Rainer Sabin. Uh, Rainer, thanks a lot, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okay, let's stick with the Michigan State Spartans um, coming off uh, that great spot with Rainer Sabin. And I think Michigan State is in that next tier. I think they're in the same tier, in my opinion with Maryland, with Indiana even. And remember, I mean, we overreact. We do it all the time, yet we never learn about it. We overreacted to Michigan State's 2020. We overreacted to Indiana's 2020. Uh, people had Michigan State winning four and a half games on the season. People had Indiana ranked 17th in the country. We're ridiculous. People were saying people had Indiana ahead of Michigan, tiered with Penn State. That was ridiculous. And now they're saying Indiana's not even as good as Michigan State. They're not even as good as Maryland. Heck, some are saying they're not as good as Rutgers. What are we talking about, people? What are we talking about? All right, before we get to Indiana, uh, let me talk a little Sparty here. Mr. Walker is the real deal. Kenneth Walker III, I will put respect when I use his name. He had a monster game once again. He's been a beast all season long. He was the one guy, when he touched the football, you could tell Miami's defenders were not ready for his speed, which was, you know, I, I haven't checked the schedule. He's coming from the ACC, ironically. But I know with the ACC, if you're not in the same division, you could go seven years without playing somebody. So um, they, they may not have crossed paths, but still, it was kind of ironic. An ACC guy is kind of surprising the ACC program with his speed. But I think as it was an impressive win, I don't want to take it. I, I feel bad. I don't want to take anything away from I can't. You know what? I literally cannot take anything away from Michigan State. They got the win. They are 3-0. That will count towards their bowl regardless of what I say about them. But I don't want to put too much stock into the win because of how the game played out. Um, they started out very shaky. 
Um, Miami moved the ball at will against their defense. Uh, it was it was ridiculous until Derek King um, kind of banged up his shoulder and it looked like he was going to come out of the game. Until that point, they they played scared defensively. They had no faith in their defensive backs. I'm talking 10 to 15-yard cushions. I'm talking about a 15-yard cushion on 3rd and 10 where the Miami wide receiver was able to just run to the first marker, turn around, and catch the ball. Um, Miami's first touchdown, Rambo, who just torched Sparty on Saturday, he basically was standing still in the back of the end zone and caught the ball. Like, he stopped running his route, and he just stood still. And still, nobody was able to defend him. Um, at 7-3, their, their tight end, Mallory, was open in the end zone. Again, perpendicular to the quarterback. He was in the front of the end zone. Flat out dropped the ball that hit him, hit him in the chest, and and this is this was the prime example, you know, without doing uh, two hours on this game, the prime example of how Miami gave this game away. It went from drop touchdown to penalty, drop touchdown on on second and goal from inside the ten to a penalty, which pushed them back out to around the twenty to no points at all. They ended up going empty-handed on that possession, and you know Miami struggled in the red zone. And you want to tell me, um, Thorne, I've heard people really talk up Thorne, uh, best quarterback since Connor Cook. Multiple people I've heard say that. Um, we, we, whoa, we need, to, we need to chill out a little bit. I mean, his final numbers were good. He finished very strong. But, you know, at halftime, he was 9-17 for 115 yards with sack three times. Um by the third quarter, by uh, by the third quarter, he was thirteen to twenty six after three quarters. Thirteen to twenty six for one hundred and sixty seven yards. He was not that impressive, folks. And he did, to his credit, he had a big fourth quarter. He made a couple of his best throws. Did come in the fourth quarter, five for five, two touchdowns. Isn't that when you want your quarterback to play the best? Yeah, it, it is. It is. That's all accurate, but. If you watch the game, it just felt like Miami was ready to quit. It really did. And they looked like they had nothing left. They really did. And I don't know if this was still, you know, people say, and, and Rainer brought it up, how Alabama can wreck your season. That, that's kind of, I was thinking this as I'm watching the game at 17-14. And plus, all the mistakes Miami made. They caught, like, you know, they should have been winning this game by double digits early on. Instead, they were down at halftime, finally kept it close, and then King had the big fumble. Um, uh, two credit to Sparty's uh, uh, defensive play, but you just felt like Miami was ready to fold. So I think a lot of this was about a bad Miami team. I don't know what their talent level is, but they just did not look like a well-coached team. And to Mel Tucker's credit, Michigan State looked like a much better coached team than the Hurricanes did. Michigan State did not make mistakes. They played more conservatively, and they just allowed Miami to make mistakes, whether it was penalties or turnovers. Um, that fumble, you know, and, and it was Michigan State's players making some plays too. I do like the Michigan State front. They do have some good, um, effective defensive ends. Um, and what I also really liked a lot was um, so much focus was on 
the transfer portal and the amount of players Sparty brought in, Mel Tucker brought in through transfers, and, and that is accurate. But it's not just the transfers. A lot of young guys were making impact on the Michigan State defense, true sophomores or redshirt freshman guys from last year's recruiting class um, really stepped up a lot for for Mel Tucker and company. Uh, safety, Angelo Gross uh, was expected to be a starter. He flashed a lot last season, but we saw him join in the starting lineup by Cal Halliday at outside linebacker, by Jeff Petrosky, I mean, excuse me, by Simon uh, Simeon Barrow, a defensive tackle. So you had three guys from that class starting on defense. Jeff Petrosky came off the bench and had a sack and, and a forced fumble. Uh, Darius Snow was one of their leading tacklers. He's kind of like a nickelback, and, and Snow, uh, he's a legacy at, at Michigan State, if you remember their uh, point guard, Eric Snow. So I, I think Michigan State, as I said, I thought they were well undervalued and underrated heading into the season. I think their floor has been raised. You know, Nobody thinks right now they're going to be a four-and-a-half win team. I'm, I, I'm looking. I always thought they'd win at least six um, maybe seven. Could they win eight? Maybe, maybe, maybe the floor has been raised. Uh, the floor has definitely been raised. Has the ceiling been raised? I'm still going to say question mark on whether the ceiling has been raised. I still need to see more. I know, you know, some people out there seem to think they have a great feel for them. I, I'm still not sold. Northwestern obviously is putrid. So this was a Miami team, was which was supposed to be a test, and I really don't think Miami provided the test uh, we thought they would for Michigan State. Speaking of a team that um, was tested last week, and that was Maryland, who needed to come back against Illinois to pull one out at twenty to seventeen. And, you know, for a while, it looked like it was going to be a typical Maryland game where they blew opportunities. They had a chance to really put this game away um, in Champaign early on in the third quarter, turned the ball over, turned it over again on the following possession. Then the offense started to sputter. Um, so it just felt like, wow, here we go. This is Maryland. Um, we knew, as I said, you know, in my preview, in my, in my uh, Big Ten Bets preview, we know what Maryland is supposed to do against Illinois, but hey, that's that's their program. That's the history of this program. That's the history of this coach is they're supposed to do something, but so often, too often, they fall short, especially when expectations rise. So because of that, I'm going to try to take more of a positive out of this game because even though they were headed down that path again, I mean, we're talking... 6.9 yards per play compared to 4.7, 481 yards to just 335. Um, they ran the ball better than them. They threw the ball better uh, than Illinois. Um, it shouldn't have been this close of a game, but it was tight. They were down by seven points in the fourth quarter. The ball inside their own 20. They marched down the field. They got the ball back, and they won in regulation with a field goal. So they scored 10 points, half their points, in, in, in those last two drives. So that, to me, says maybe it's not same old Maryland. Maybe they have a little more gumption, a little more uh, mental resolve, a little more toughness, whatever you want to call it. 
and they're not going to just fold when things don't go their way and they don't win easily. They found a way to win gritty at the end, and I kind of like that. And I like what I saw from a defense that had six sacks against an Illinois team that only dropped back 32 times. So that's a really high percentage. And, uh, you know, you can say it's about the opponent and maybe Illinois' offensive line is starting to look overrated. But this is supposed to be a pretty decent offensive line, one that is very experienced, one of the most experienced units in the country. And uh, you had six sacks, two each by, oh, this is a tough one. Okay, Yanonu. And then uh, Nachami also had two, and Rose had two. So you had a a defensive end, you had a stand-up edge guy, and you had a a defensive tackle, an interior guy, uh, make tackles. This was also a team that saw some young players uh, make an impact. True freshman uh, Jennings, who was a flip from Michigan, he was one of the kids that was wavering um, in terms of would, would Harbaugh stay on as the coach. Uh, And he was a guy, he was the best player Michigan lost. He went to Maryland. He had six tackles. Uh, Robinson, who was even more highly rated, he had three tackles. Jackson, uh, defensive tackle, who wasn't that highly rated, he also had six tackles. Impressive performance from a true freshman along the defensive line. Nick Cross, who is the leader of this defense, who is the stud of this defense, he had seven tackles. He had a pick. He broke up three other passes. So this defense really is playing Uh, a a lot better than they have in the past. And I think Maryland is looking more and more like a legit uh, bold team, a team that can compete with a Michigan state. And I think the biggest reason is, and it took me way too long to get to this point, but uh, the quarterback Tagovailoa, Tagovailoa, he was 32 of 43, 350 yards. They've really done a great job this year with him of not, They've sacrificed a little in terms of big play, but not all of it. And they've done a great job of giving him some easier throws, some easier decisions to make. This has been a complex passing offense um, that Loxley brought over, similar to what they used at Alabama. And, you know, they've made it a little simpler for him. And why not? You know, I, I hate the term of dumbing it down. It's why if you can do something effective, simpler, why make it more complicated? That's dumb. That would be dumb to complicate things, right? So he has been much, much more efficient. And I think that's raised the floor for Maryland where they're not so much of a swing for the fences, all or nothing, home run or, you know, home run or strikeout type of deal. And that's the kind of offense we feared they might be. And they look like they might be a little more efficient, especially if they could protect the football Fleet Davis had a good game, but he did have a, a fumble that maybe is the reason why this was an interesting game. And finally, we have the Indiana Hoosiers, who, folks, I was the guy that was down in Indiana. I was telling y'all that you have Indiana way overrated, and now I think everybody is overreacting a little too much about the Indiana Hoosiers with their second loss of the season. They've played quality teams they've played Iowa and Cincinnati and yes they lost to them but those teams are better than Miami so I'm not sure if Indiana would have lost to Miami I'm not sure if Michigan State would have beaten Cincinnati or beaten Iowa I don't think they would have okay and and I think Indiana they still have the question marks um 
that I have about them, which is namely uh, Michael Penix and the offense and the offensive line. The offensive line still is not a good unit. Um, Michael Penix is a high-variance quarterback, and so far, after not really having to pay for that in the past, um, they're paying it. They're paying for it this year as he continues to pile up the interceptions. They lost the turnover battle 4-2. They also had a kick return for a touchdown. We're going to talk about this with uh, Sammy Jacobs. Um, but before I throw it to him, I think right now, I think Indiana's defense played well enough. They played very well. I shouldn't say well enough. They played excellent. Only 7.6 yards per play against Cincinnati. They also played very well defensively against Iowa. So they've been playing, they've been playing very well all season long. Um, and I think Indiana's ceiling for, for, for you guys has been lowered because I never had the ceiling that high. I thought seven was probably the ceiling for them. I still think this team is probably going to end up winning six or seven games. I think they have a, clearly a better defense than both Michigan State and Maryland does. So I think these three programs are all about six or seven win teams. And when they play each other... I, it's to me, it's kind of like a toss-up game. And with that, we'll go to our next guest. And joining us now to talk Indiana football is my guy, my boy, Sammy Jacobs from Hoosier Huddle. Um, Sammy, let's just jump right into this game on Saturday against Cincinnati. And before we actually talk about the game, you are a Hoosier through and through. You're, you moved from New York and you're living there now. You were a student. You've been doing Hoosier Huddle for a bunch of years now. What was the atmosphere like on Saturday for this game? It was pretty awesome. Um, very awesome, to say the least. It's probably the best atmosphere I've seen at, a, at an IU football game. It probably ties with that 07 bucket game where IU needed to win to get to bowl where it sold out and you had, um, you know, Purdue fans there and everybody was in the stands by kickoff. But it was um, it was awesome to be in a full stadium and, uh, and and see the fans get behind this this team. Now, they didn't stay the whole time, but it was a gazillion degrees. Um, and apparently the stadium ran out of water. Not They're good. Not, you, not 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 ideal on a uh, on an 88 degree day that that probably felt in the in the high nineties. So, but it, it was, um, it was really cool to see a, uh, a, um, a, a full stadium to see the, the fans, e even after the loss to Iowa, uh, you know, they, they had 47,000 uh, against Idaho and then uh, a sellout against Cincinnati. So it was really, and they, they got treated to a pretty good game too. Now I know it was a 14 point uh, difference, but, you know, IU had the ball going into the lead with about five and a half minutes left uh, as well there. So uh, it, it was a, a pretty pretty darn good game they saw uh, uh, between two, who I, I still think IU's a pretty decent team, two, two really good teams uh, battling it out for a win. Yeah, no, I thought it was a, it was a quality game, and I think it really was uh, the best game Indiana has played this season so far through three games. I know the score – if you just see the final score, that might not indicate that. But Indiana did actually gain outgain Cincinnati both on yards and a yards per play basis. 
Um, the I think the issue there was, you know, the losing the turnover battle four yeah. to two plus the uh, throw in the kickoff return for a touchdown. And those are difficult things to overcome. And, and let's start, you know, let's go back to the turnovers. Three of those were interceptions by Michael Penix, who is only 17 of 40 throwing the football. So he's definitely had issues so far this season with his accuracy, um, with turnovers. Talk a little bit about him. Um, how is his health? And, and what is the leash for Penix moving forward um, in terms of being the starting quarterback at Indiana? Uh, well, for, the, for those who don't know, Penix is coming off of a second ACL injury. He got hurt uh, late November last year uh, against Maryland towards uh, ACL, the second time he's torn that particular ACL. So, you know, to turn around in nine months and, and get on the field is an impressive feat in and of itself. But – you know, he didn't participate in the spring. Uh, he's had limited practices and things like that. And to me, he just – he doesn't look comfortable. And, you know, he's he's healthy. The doctors have cleared him uh, for contact and all that stuff uh, prior to the season. But it just looks like he's not mentally ready to be put into the game yet, whether or not that's trusting his knee uh, and things like that. But you go back to the Maryland game. And this is a game after he threw for like 495 yards against those mighty Buckeyes of Ohio State. Um, and, uh, you know, he just didn't look right right then either. And he didn't – He was. it was a lot of the same issues, throwing the ball high, throwing it off his back leg, not, not being able to plant and transfer weight. So it's, it's kind of a mystery as to why he's always kind of been erratic but he also is the season leader in completion percentage at nearly 70% when, when he played and was healthy in 2019. So a lot of blame could go on the offensive line. He is constantly under pressure as, as well, but I thought the offensive line played pretty decently against Cincinnati, Cincinnati front that that's really, really good uh, and things like that. He did get x-rays after the game on Saturday they came back negative, uh, and Tom Allen said today that he is still QB1 uh, for Western Kentucky on Saturday. If I were the head coach of Indiana, I would probably start Tuttle on Saturday um, because it's the reason you lost to Cincinnati was due to quarterback play. And it's not like Desmond Ritter played a, a perfect game either. I think he, he, you know, he turned the ball over twice. He only he finished 20 at 36 for 210 yards. So Desmond Ritter wasn't, you know, playing much more much better than, um, you know, your average quarterback, even though he's a, 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 a an above average quarterback. But when you're, you know, throwing three interceptions and, and they're not tip passes that go off a of receiver's hands, they're bad throws and bad decisions. Uh, you know, threw one in the end zone when on third down, when all you have to do is throw it away. If not, uh, since nobody was open, you take your three points with your all, all Big Ten kicker uh, 30 seconds before half, and you're trying to force a ball down the middle of the field under pressure while you're falling down. Uh, that leads to a, a Cincinnati field goal. And then uh, to throw across your body, I know it was the last drive IU had or the second to last drive, to throw across your body back to the middle of the field 
while somebody's chasing you, it's never you're probably the best outcome of that is an incomplete pass. And it's the decision making is the problem. You know, if he was trying to throw it through tight windows and the ball gets tipped and gets picked off, you could probably live with it a little bit better. But it's he's got six interceptions. I think he has four touchdown passes on the year. He just hasn't looked comfortable. And so that's why I would go with Tuttle. I, uh, you know, he, he went up to Wisconsin and won last year. Uh, he played most of the bowl game with the separated shoulder and gutted that out. So I do think he has the respect of, uh, of the, uh, of his teammates in the locker room. He can run the ball, um, which Michael Penix seems hesitant to do given, you know, and, and that's probably due to injuries and getting hit and things like that. Uh, but yeah, I'd roll with, with, with Tuttle. But again, it's like kind of like a pitcher struggling through his mechanics how long do you keep them in, um, you know, before you end up throwing away a game? Um, Indiana's got to make a decision on their quarterback soon because if Western Kentucky can, can sling it and, and they're going to score some points, and this is an absolute must win for IU. Uh, you're coming off a 6-2 and two year. You started the year at, at number 17 in the country, a lot of hype. And if you go down 1-3, one, one and three, heading to Penn State for a primetime game, you're looking, staring down, down the barrel at 1-4, and four, and your season's going down the drain. So it's it's got to be on the mind of the coaches and things like that. But right now, it's Mike Penix's quarterback one. So, it, you know, I, I definitely hear what you're saying with Tuttle, who was a highly touted kid coming out of high school. He was a four-star. He's a Utah transfer that Indiana brought in definitely added some nice depth and improved that quarterback room. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, the offensive line has not been great. That also has affected the running game. Uh, you know, the two top two backs, Carr and Baldwin, only gained 82 yards on, on 30 carries against Cincinnati. So I think you, you definitely need a quarterback who can get the ball to your weapons in the throw game, which is tight end Hendershot, who had six catches, uh, we saw Matthews, the Florida State transfer, really have a breakout game. Um, he yep. had, he went for 120 yards. Um, but I got to ask you, what, what happened with uh, Ty Freifogel? That, that was one of his worst games, I think, right? I mean, he only had one catch for 13 yards. He It looked like he had trouble getting separation from those uh, Cincinnati corners, who are very good corners. And, and you know, he had some opportunities – I, you know, I think a couple of them are debatable whether they were quote unquote drops. But if you are the marquee guy, if you're going to be like an all first team, all Big Ten receiver, sometimes you got to make tough catches. Well, this is all American. Right. That, I mean, that's, right. and he was targeted seven times on Saturday and had one catch for 13 yards. There was one or two plays where you might have called pass interference. And look, I'm not blaming the refs. The refs are horrible on both sides. There are clear penalties on both sides, just just didn't get called. Um, and I thought they had lost a little bit of, of control of the game. But, um, yeah, Freifel, he's just having trouble getting open. And when the ball does get to him, he has not made the competitive catch. There are a few plays where, um, you know, if you, if you make a more competitive play, you probably come down with the ball and things like that. The ball's hitting him in the hands most of the time and things like that. So, you know, it's not all on Michael Penix Jr. either. Um, you know, the play calling's been kind of shoddy as well. 
uh, and your receivers have to make a catch. There's a, a, a play with Cam Buckley, but man, if you're going to be an all American wide receiver, you can't go get seven targets and make one catch for 13 yards. I mean, it, no matter how good of, of a secondary you're playing with, you got to catch the ball. Even if you make, you know, five catches for, for 35 yards, then yeah, you, you made the, the, the plays that you can make and the guys just tackled you before you could break loose. But one catch, seven, seven targets. He did not do much against Iowa either. Uh, he had a couple plays where, you know, he just looks slow, uh, slow to me. And I, I know we talked about this when we did our, our draft stuff for IU, Dan. He came back to improve his speed. And I don't know if he's helped his dra- draft stock, um, or I know he definitely hasn't helped it. I don't know if he's hurt it um, more to where it's like, uh-oh, why did he come back? Uh, so, like, a lot of people criticize guys when they left. But after a big year, you know, this is the risk you have coming back is, is a performance like Ty Freifogel had on Saturday. For sure. No, definitely for sure. Um, uh, Sammy, so far from what I've seen from Indiana, I, I do think the defense has held up well. Um, the secondary is, is loaded. They have some of the best cornerbacks in all of the Big Ten. Raheem Lane, the safety, had a big game eight tackles, tackle for a loss. He broke up a pass. Ryder Anderson, the, the transfer, I believe, from Ole Miss, yep. um, he had seven tackles, a sack. He gives you that presence up front. Um, held the Bearcats at 3.3 yards per carry, 5.8 yards per pass attempt. You'll take those numbers every day against a top 25, top 10 team. Even the Iowa game, it really wasn't the Iowa offense that hurt you. So is it safe to say you're happy with the way the defense has played so far? Yeah, um, you know, IU gave Iowa 17 points off of – they threw two pick sixes and gave them a short field uh, on a field goal with an interception. Uh, and you look at the Cincinnati game, and, uh, you know, Cincinnati scored 14 points off of turnovers, but here are their touchdowns. Um, you know, the defense didn't – you know, until Micah McFadden got ejected, and, and we'll talk about, I'm sure we'll talk about targeting here shortly. But through the first 24, 25 minutes of the game, they had shut um, Cincinnati down. I think Cincinnati only had one first down to that point. That penalty happens. Um, so it should have been a punt and say, okay, so they gave up a, t- a touchdown. And then Penix throws an interception that gives them the ball at the IU 46 field goal. Um, a long, a long punt return, um, sets them up at the Indiana 30 and they're held to a field goal. Uh, then they actually drove the ball down five minute drive for touchdown, kickoff return for touchdown interception. It's, you know, and a lot of it is, is on the offense too. You gotta, you gotta be able to, you, you want your drives to end in kicks right now. A punt is like the third best option um, for Indiana's offense because they, they've been fumbling and, and turning it over uh, way too much. But the defense has been fantastic. And I think Ryder Anderson, uh, he's been awesome, an awesome addition on that defensive line. And he's that that pass rusher off the edge that they need. And, you know, seeing him post game and in, in interviews, he looks like a, a power forward, like a college power forward. Uh, and things like that. Um, 
Raheem Lane moved over to safety. I, I think he's having a nice year. He was kind of too slow to be at corner, but he has good instincts uh, and, and a body for safety, and I think that's a better fit for him. Uh, and then Mike McFadden, you saw the difference that he made. Uh, you know, the IU is dominating, and that they they were, you know, a, a targeting penalty away from. And I've talked to a couple Cincinnati play, um, writers, and you, you saw Luke Fickle's comments that that changed the game uh, in terms of that. And you know, if Indiana does not get flagged for that, and it wasn't a penalty on the field, and went to review. They, they probably run away with this game. And, and that's the difference maker he is. He's a, he's an All-American. He was a preseason All-American uh, and all that stuff. So I use defense. It's a veteran squad, and they've been playing very, very well. So fans should be happy uh, about that. All right, Sammy, one more before I let you go. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, this team was hyped up going into the season. Um, you also, you know, talked about how, there's been some disappointment at, at the quarterback position and how this big, you know, this game coming up is a big game. And, and, you know, suddenly you go from that six and two season to potentially looking at one and four um, at three games in what's the recalibration for Indiana moving forward. You know, I see some people, like you said, some people who I thought in my opinion, maybe overrated Indiana a little bit going into the year. Now all of a sudden I'm, feeling the reverse where I'm hearing people go, well, this might be, you know, Cincinnati won't get a quality win because Indiana might finish four and eight. Like, you know, it's, it's been a quick turnaround, right? They're going, they were going to go nine and three. Now all of a sudden they're four and eight team. So, uh, you know, from your perspective, from somebody who watches this team week in and week out, what's your recalibration after this one and two start? Well, I mean, if you looked at the schedule preseason in the open with at Iowa and, and Cincinnati at home. And you know, those teams are both were going to be, you know, good teams coming in. So one and two wasn't out of the question. You just didn't expect yeah. Michael Penix to look like he forgot how to play football. Um, you know, if, if I was a 34, 28 loss, you know, the season has a whole different tenor to it. Um, but recalibrating it, you know, Michigan state, you got to look, you know, and it's kind of too early to judge some of these teams. You know, Michigan State beat a god-awful Northwestern team, and Miami doesn't look like they're any better uh, and, and things like that. But, you know, five out of the first seven games then are going to be ranked opponents, uh, and it, it just gets that much harder. So, you know, I think recalibrating expectations, you just hope that they can get to a bowl game and win it. Now, some of the fans will say, well, the next step is to beat Ohio State. I never bought into that. Next step was to win a bowl game. Uh, IU hasn't won a bowl game since 1991. They've, you know, had the heartbreak in the last four bowl games. That's um, kind of been a monkey on their back now, and it's kind of a thing. Um, but it, it's to recalibrate. You just get to six, um, take it week by week, and it starts at Western Kentucky on on Saturday, and then you just, you know, you got to beat Purdue at the end of the year too. Uh, so. You know, when your trophy games, you get Michigan State at home in the brass platoon game. You have to go end the season at Purdue, uh, which is always a tough place to play. But if you could get to a bowl game and win, um, and whether that's either seven wins or eight wins, then I think you have a successful season. Uh, just because the, the the strength of this schedule is absurd. Uh, you know, you, since, uh, Iowa, Cincinnati, now you have Michigan State and Michigan, both in the top 25, I believe. You have Ohio State, of course, and you have Penn State. 
it's a happier schedule than the top 25. Um, and that's barring other teams who, who might win because Rutgers has been playing well. Um, Maryland looks like they're playing a lot better and, and things like that. So what seemed like you could pencil in W's at the beginning of the year have now become toss-up games. That's true. That's a good point. It's a, it's a recalibration, not just for Indiana, but basically for the entire uh, Big Ten East, which looks like one of the stronger divisions in all of college football. Uh, Sammy, thanks a lot for joining me today and giving us some time, giving the listeners your time. That's Sammy Jacobs of HoosierHuddle.com. And you can also follow them on Twitter, right? Hoosier at HoosierHuddle as well. Yep, at Hoosier underscore Huddle. So we already had at Hoosier Huddle. Hoosier underscore Huddle. Got to get that right. And, of course, the website is HoosierHuddle.com. All right. Always a pleasure, Dan. And finally, we have the Rutgers Scarlet Knights, who are in a class by themselves. Yeah, that that was, folks, that was um, some sarcasm. Uh, They are still the bottom of the Big Ten East, okay? There is a Fox Sports uh, personality who has Rutgers. Rutgers! I mean, he's got not just Rutgers, but he's got Rutgers, Maryland, uh, Michigan State, Michigan, and Ohio State all in the same class. Well, you know what? The good thing is we're going to get to see Rutgers play Michigan this week, and they will be playing Ohio State the following week. So we will see if they are truly in the same class as the Wolverines and the Buckeyes. Uh, Folks, this isn't meant to be to hate on Rutgers. I hope they do well. I love the idea of a quality football team in the Northeast. I think Greg Schiano was a home run hire. I think he was a phenomenal coach. I think just by having him as your coach, you are, they are a strong, you know, they are light years better than they were under Chris Ash, which was embarrassing. They were embarrassingly bad. They were not, should not be, they should be relegated bad. That's how bad they were. Like you don't belong, you don't belong in the Big Ten. That's how bad they were. So now it's kind of like, okay, you belong in the Big Ten, but you're still the worst. You're still the worst team in the East, and you still might be the worst team in the conference. You know, I hear people talking about Rutgers and, and looking forward on their 3-0 and start and, you know, looking at, well, they're going to win at least two more because they're at North, North Northwestern and at Illinois. It's like, really? They're just, they're just going to win those games because Brett Bielema and Pat Fitzgerald are just going to let them walk in and win? Come on, guys. Let's, let's take it easy with this. They beat Temple. Who stinks? They beat Syracuse. Who stinks? And they beat Delaware. Who's an okay FCF school? Not great FCF school, folks. People are now suddenly talking up Delaware football. We need to relax with this team. They are much improved in terms of what they used to be. But that does not mean that they should be getting votes in your top 25. That should not mean that they're probably headed to a bowl game. Uh, That should not be that we're assuming any conference win, especially on the road. I don't care who the opponent is or how the opponent is playing right now. We can't just, you you can't just uh, write it in. Oh, that's a W for Rutgers. 
Okay, I'm and I'm not being I'm truly am not being a hater here, but their offense is terrible. They I watched them against Syracuse. I watched that game. It was it was gross. It was hard to watch. They averaged 2.7 yards per play. They were gifted that game by Syracuse, and they got you know a couple calls went their way. And let me give you this, okay? Noah Vedrell, their quarterback, out of the 121 quarterbacks who have dropped back to pass at least 50 times, Noah Vedrell's passing grade is 107th out of 121. And if you want to look at the lowest average depth target, which is where he's throwing the football, he is 121 out of 121. He's basically handing the ball off on pass plays. Their yards per play is 105th in the country against a bad schedule. Rutgers, folks, is not a good football team. I've heard way, I feel bad ranting about them. I know Rutgers people. I have Rutgers friends who listen to this podcast. Maybe not anymore. Um, but I have, I'm, I've heard way too many national uh, podcast people say Rutgers is a good team. Folks, they're not a good team. Okay? They are a team that is better. They are a team that is improving. They are a team that's headed in the right direction. They are a team that is well coached, who's recruiting well, that maybe in a year or two could be a good team. But right now, today, they are not. They are still the worst team in the Big Ten East. And I'd be pretty darn surprised if they don't finish in the bottom. But again, they are better. They are more competent. We're not expecting them to go out there and lose 70-3 to in the big house on Saturday. I mean, I may predict a 41-10 to win by the Wolverines, you know, still by 31. I mean, I hear people out there saying, I want... I hope next year this game will be a single-digit uh, spread when they play a Michigan or an Ohio State. It's like single, single against Ohio State, single-digit spread. You got to be a top ten team to get that. Oregon was a fourteen-point underdog. Come on, this—you're still Rutgers. Enjoy your wins, but let's lot overflate, overinflate what they've done. And I'm not talking to Rutgers fans, alums, people. You enjoy it. You're 3-0. Oh, you, these are games, I know it, these are games you would have lost. You would have lost to Syracuse two years ago. You may have even lost to Temple two years ago. Delaware might have been a challenging game. I get it. I, I want this team to be better, but for the national people who are pretending they know something about Big Ten football and about the Rutgers program, don't tell me this team is a good team because they're not. They're not. They're still on the bottom tier. All right, that wraps up. Uh, this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You know, come at me on Twitter. I'm Dan at Dan the Sportman. Tell me how much I hate your team. Tell me how much I'm biased. I want to hear it all. I uh, hope you enjoy the show, and we'll be back either uh, tomorrow night or Friday with the Big Ten bets. This is the Big Big Ten Football Show, where leaders become legends. <laughs>